0: Last Sunday, you know, we've been studying the book of John, and last Sunday we looked at the proclamation in John 11, where Jesus proclaimed to Martha that he is the resurrection and the life. This morning we're going to see in the scripture in John 11, Jesus substantiate his claim through an incredible miracle, the raising of Martha and Mary's brother, Lazarus who had been dead and buried for four days. Now, the raising of Lazarus is proof that Jesus is indeed who He says He is, the resurrection and the life. And back in verse 25, which we analyzed or studied last week, we actually saw the fifth I Am statement. And I forgot to mention that to you last week because I was all caught up in, in... other parts of the text, but that was the fifth I Am statement, you know, these big, bold statements from Jesus proclaiming His deity, His Godness. So we saw that back in 25, so I thought I'd mention that to you. Um, Now please, if you would, take your Bibles and turn over to John 11. We're going to be focusing this morning on 38 through 44. John 11, verses 38 through 44, that will be our text for this morning, and by way of context, just to get you up to speed, if you weren 't here or if you 've already forgotten what we talked about, which happens, you know life is busy and fast paced and chaotic, and sometimes we kind of forget I, I sometimes I forget what I preached the week before, which is terrible, but it happens, but by way of context, Jesus and the disciples or his disciples had arrived near Bethany, small town, two miles outside of Jerusalem, northeast. And he had arrived where, in, in Bethany where Martha, Mary, and Lazarus lived. And Martha, Mary, and many Jewish mourners from Jerusalem had, you know, Lazarus had died and Jesus arrived in their town or near their town on the outskirts and they run out, the sisters and a bunch of Jewish mourners run out To meet Jesus. First Martha goes, then she goes back and gets Mary, and Mary comes, and then all these Jewish mourners came. And half I realized half of these Jewish mourners didn't even know this family. Many of them did, but many didn't. And it was customary for Jewish people just to go to funerals, even though they weren't connected to the family. It was like they had to go and mourn with the family because of their, you know, nationhood, because they were all Jews or something of that nature. So some of these people knew them. Others didn't. And I always thought that would be really weird to have people at your funeral or at at your funeral, you're dead, so you don't care, but at somebody's funeral that you don't know, that weren't tied to the family. And many of these people were in that situation, but they all kind of run out to Jesus and, you know, they're all weeping and wailing and emotionally exploding over the loss of Lazarus. And Jesus became angered by the scene and by many of the mourners, including Mary, who was an absolute mess. And yes, he was filled with compassion, but at the same time, he was also angered by their response because they were acting like those who have no hope, those who don't understand the resurrection or who he is or anything else. And and, and this happens typically with unbelievers, they just completely lose it at funerals because their hope is wrapped up in the person who's passed away. And so here are disciples of Jesus, primarily Martha and Mary, who are acting like the others that are there, unbelievers who have no hope. And they have the Messiah right in front of them, who's been preaching for three years and telling them that He is their hope and He is the resurrection and these things. And He just, He's angered by it. You know, He's angered by this display of utter hopelessness and faithlessness, or whatever you want to call it. And Jesus kind of interrupts this mourning and situation, and He says, where have you laid His body? And Martha and Mary both replied, well, Lord, if you come with us, we'll show you. And then while walking to the tomb, Jesus wept. We look at that verse. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. But we realized very quickly that his style of weeping and reason for weeping was vastly different from those around him. He was controlling himself, and he was weeping silently is how the wording translates out of the Greek. And so he was kind of keeping it to himself, not bottled up, but he was kind of weeping to himself, not making a scene. And he was weeping primarily over the effects of sin and death upon his close friend and faithful disciple Lazarus. So his rationale for weeping and his style of mourning and weeping was incredibly different, not even to be compared with what others were doing around him who were losing it over the loss of this great man. And when the Jewish mourners noticed Jesus weeping, some of them, you know, they noticed that Jesus himself was weeping, two groups, you know, kind of formed. And and one group believed that Jesus loved Lazarus and that his tears and his emotional response was proof of that. And they also believed that Jesus could do something about the situation. So these would have been maybe distant disciples of Jesus or allies of Jesus Uh, supporters of him in some sense, but they believed that he loved Lazarus and his tears proved it and that he could possibly do something about the situation. But the other group was incredibly skeptical and they even criticized the Lord and said, well, man, if he can give a guy who hasn't, you know, who was born blind, if he can give that guy sight, why couldn't he raise this guy up? So they were not people of faith. They were people of, of great skepticism and they were people of criticism. And so there's your context. That's where we left off. And now we come to verse 38. This is the very next thing that happens in the narrative. Take a look at it with me. Then Jesus deeply moved, notice again, then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. So you can kind of picture in your mind, they're walking up on this cave that's, you know, this cave that has a stone in front of it. That's what the tomb looked like. But more importantly, when Jesus witnessed, and he, he's totally aware of what's going on around him, even though he's weeping and walking over the tomb. But when he arrives, he, he realizes what's going on with this second group and the, and the skepticism and the doubts and the criticisms that are kind of circulating here. And these two groups were basically debating one another well, I think he loved him and I think he can do something about it. Well, I'm not sure he can because he didn't do anything about it and he delayed and the guy died. And so Jesus is totally aware of what's going on around him here. And it, the text says he became deeply moved. Notice again, the word again. And moved, deeply moved, translates out of the Greek as being angry, not just filled with compassion or sadness over what's going on, but with anger. So, he is weeping and walking to the tomb, and these, there's one camp that's kind of supportive. There's the other one that's highly skeptical, and it re-angers the Lord as he's trying to mourn the loss of his friend, which he's about to raise from the dead. And I think that you've got this skepticism here. You've got this unbelief represented here, and then you see the anger of the Lord because of it. And as Christians, I, I just have no doubt about this, and even for myself, we tend to think of unbelief as Christians, you know, we tend to think of unbelief as, as a weakness. Well, he has weak faith. You know, unbelief or doubts, that's just a weakness that is common to, you know, common to believers or whatever. And so what, what we do is we actually downplay unbelief. We just paint it as a weakness. Well, it's just a weakness that we suffer from. But you must understand that, that unbelief is not a weakness, it's a sin, no matter which way you paint it, it is a sin to have unbelief. In fact, it may very well be the sin that God hates most. Unbelief may very well be the sin that God hates the most. If He's capable of hating one sin above another, and I think that that's possible because we see in His law different levels of punishment for different sins. I think God hates all sin, obviously. And some say, well, he hates all sin equally. Well, that might be true, but not all sins would get you the death penalty according to his law. So I think there are certain sins with God that are at another level. And I believe unbelief is the one that offends him most. Just consider the Exodus when God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt. Was it not unbelief that stoked the flames of God's wrath against the Israelites in those days over and over and over? What was it that, that upset and angered God to the point of wrath during the Exodus when the people of God were coming out of Egypt? It was persistent unbelief and doubting that he had their best interest in mind. In fact, they unbelieved so much they wanted to go back to the imprisonment because they had better food back there. It was better to be shackled to somebody over there, and, and to have, but to have good food than to be walking out here in the wilderness kind of mindlessly. Lots of unbelief represented there, and it it really stoked the flames of God's wrath. And if it hadn't been for Moses, I don't think the people of God would be around. He'd have wiped them all out except a tiny remnant. Moses just kept petitioning the Lord, you know, don't be angry with them. Let me be angry with them. Consider Stephen's incredible sermon in Acts 7. In verse 51, God rebuked the Jews for their what? Their unbelief. God rebukes the Jews through Stephen, who's proclaiming the word against them. They have rejected and killed their Messiah. He's preaching a sermon to them. And Stephen, God inspires Stephen and through Stephen to rebuke his own people. And and he says, this: he says, you stubborn people, exclamation point. You are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. What was God rebuking the Israelites for in that instance through Stephen? Unbelief. No faith rejecting the Messiah. Consider Hebrews 3.12. It describes an unbelieving heart as what? An evil heart. An unbelieving heart is an evil heart. Well, that can't possibly apply to God's people. There's no... It doesn't distinguish. Hebrews, I would think, was written to probably some believers and some unbelievers to show the supremacy of Christ but primarily to believers because unbelievers can't discern scripture scripture is always written to believers and given to believers for the point of evangelism or edification it just plainly says an unbelieving heart is an evil heart which means that when i doubt and i don't believe i'm i'm entertaining evil in my heart my heart has become evil Consider the corrections or the rebukes of Jesus. you look at the Gospels, you see that he rebuked sickness and it fled. He, He rebuked the wind and the sea, right? Calmed the wind and the sea. He rebuked nature, basically. He rebuked demons. They came out of possessed people. He rebuked the religious leaders. Boy, I tell you, of all the people that he rebuked, boy, those are the ones that he rebuked probably the most. He rebuked his disciples for various sins, such as pride and resistance to the will of God. You think of Peter saying, well, it'll never happen. Well, get behind me, Satan. And there is one sin that Jesus called out His disciples on more than any other. Do you know what it is? Well, according to the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus rebuked His disciples seven times for unbelief. Seven times. And that's just what's recorded. If you look at the end of John, there's more things that took place that aren't recorded we don't need anything more than what God has provided but more things happen more miracles happen I'm sure there were more corrections seven times for unbelief he would do things right in front of he would teach them and perform miracles and do things right in front of them and then they couldn't connect the dots and then he would say you don't believe consider the unpardonable sin there is actually one sin that is unpardonable Scripture describes it as blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Mark 3.29. What is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Well, our version of it, because then it was a different context when it was taught, but, and it's still tied to that ancient kind of understanding of it. But the way that we interpret blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in this day and age is continued unbelief. If you continue to unbelieve, that's a sin that you will not be pardoned from. The Holy Spirit currently convicts the unsaved world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. You can read about that in John 16, 8. To resist that conviction and remain unrepentant is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. There is no pardon, either in this age or the age to come, for a person who rejects the Holy Spirit's promptings to trust in Jesus and then dies in unbelief. Lastly, consider Jesus' reaction to the skeptics in our text including Martha and Mary. We already read their testimony in the previous section. They were real believers, but they were filled with all sorts of doubts and skepticism, weren't they? They didn't think that Jesus could raise Lazarus. Consider how the text says that with all the skepticism that was playing out in front of him and all of the uncontrolled mourning and weeping like those who have no hope, the text again, over and over, twice, it says he was deeply moved. Deeply moved translates in the Greek as to snort with anger like a horse. You get so mad, you start snorting. That's the meaning. That's mad. He wept silently but when it came, he didn't shield or cover up his frustration and anger with his own disciples at this point. Why? Because they did not believe. They did not believe that he could do what he said he was going to do. Unbelief over and over and over. When Christians doubt, it grieves and even angers God because it implies that he does not care about his children or adequately provide for them. Many of you have children, and if you have a child who kept coming to you every day and saying, are we going to have dinner tonight? And you've been feeding them for 19 years. I think you'd get a little angry. Why do you ask me this every week, Joey? Have I never not fed you? How would you feel if your kid constantly doubted in your ability and constant provision or whatever it is, name the scenario, you'd get very frustrated as a parent. You've done nothing to cause the child to ever doubt in the provision. And I think when we doubt, when we exercise unbelief, when we don't trust, it's not just a weakness. It's a sin, and it's offensive to God. Heaven forbid I would cause him to snort like a horse. That'd be a loud snort the whole world would be like, what happened? And we do this. We do this. Now, I like John Calvin's take on the second appearance of deeply moved. He touches on what I'm touching on here, but he gives this next one kind of a different meaning, the way he's interpreting the word. He wrote, this is just really cool. He wrote, Christ does not approach the sepulcher, you know, the tomb." as an idle spectator, but as a champion who prepares for a contest. And therefore, we need not wonder that he groans, for the violent, violent tyranny of death which he had to conquer is placed before his eyes. So instead of it looking at frustration or anger over the unbelief, he puts a different spin on it. And he says, what's actually being represented here is that he's, he's about to do away with death for Lazarus. And he's coming at it as a champion would enter into the arena to fight into battle, which is cool to think about like that, but there's no battling for Jesus. Jesus snaps his finger and death is gone. But it's still an interesting perspective. So it could be that both ideas are represented here. In any case, we do understand, I hope, that unbelief is not a good thing. And that when we do doubt and when we do experience doubt, we can be like that man who doubted and said, help me with my unbelief, Lord. Be humble and ask him for help. John tells us that the tomb was a cave with a stone covering the opening. I like what R. Kent Hughes did. He describes what this tomb may have been like, what it might have looked like. He wrote a typical tomb. and This is just really cool. A typical tomb in those days had eight occupants. (laughs) In other words, you weren't, back in those days, you weren't buried by yourself. You were buried with other people, hopefully from your own family. I don't want to be next to, I never knew Fred. But think about that. Your body, do you care? You're dead. No. But your body is placed in a tomb with eight other people who have passed away. So they had... Multiple people in tombs in those days, probably family. You know, we do like to bury our loved ones next to each other, you know, and you try to buy several plots at the cemetery and, well, there's there, and then, then you've got the dog on the end. It's like, why did that, how did that happen? But, you know, we do that, and I think in a similar way they did that back then. So a typical tomb in those days had eight occupants. It was a hollowed-out room, perhaps in a hillside, It had three indentations on one side, three indentations on the other, and two indentations in the back, and that's where you put the bodies. Lazarus's tomb, he says, could well have already been occupied by other bodies from previous years. So we're building here, like when the stone's going to get rolled away shortly here, you're not just seeing Lazarus in there, and possibly you're not just smelling him. 39, verse 39 So they get to the tomb. Jesus is filled with balanced frustration over the unbelief and maybe great determination to overcome death and to prove to these people who He is. And look at what He says in 39. Jesus said, take away the stone. And then look at Martha's response. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to Him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. I love the King James here because it just says, Lazarus stinketh. Told you that before. So when they arrived at the tomb, Jesus commands that the stone is to be taken away. And it would have been a large and rather heavy stone, so he was probably speaking to, uh, undoubtedly speaking to some of the male mourners who were there, some bystanders who were standing there. Kind of looks over to the guys and says, take away the stone. It's not that women can't lift a stone. Uh, But there were definitely plenty of male mourners present at this thing, which is also interesting because us guys don't typically mourn about much, but they're there. They're like professional mourners. You could hire them. If you had a situation, just bring them in. They'll start crying for you. Weird. He just looks over to the guys and says, hey, roll the stone away. And what does Martha do? She immediately intervenes. She interjects. Right? She jumps right in front of this whole scenario that's playing out. I, I'm thinking that she gets in front of the stone and puts her arms out. And says, hold it a second. There's going to be, there's going to be some stinketh. King James, think about this, what you're about to do. She may have reasoned that Jesus, again, she didn't have the belief, belief or faith. She believed in Jesus as Lord and Savior, but she didn't believe that she could, he could raise Lazarus. So she may have reasoned. And this is why she interjects, but she may have reasoned that Jesus had simply come to take a final look at the body of His friend. You know, sometimes people do that. They, you know, well, before you bury him, or obviously you can't do it after they're buried, but some people will go to the place and, you know, they'll have open casket and these things. They want to see that person one last time. And she may have reasoned that, okay, He's, okay, I know why He's here. He's come just to take another look at Lazarus, but this isn't a good idea because it's been four days. He stinketh. You know, decomposition had already started. And the sight would be gruesome, even though he's wrapped. You know, it's not a good idea, Jesus, to go ahead and remove that because the, the sight and the smell are just going to be too gruesome. And I think in her mind, and I do have a little compassion for her here, in her mind, she's heartbroken over what's happened, You know, but in her mind, taking the stone away would only serve to magnify an already terrible... Tragic situation, wouldn't it? They lost their loved one. I don't want to, I don't want to smell his decaying body. I don't want to see his decaying body. I I get it. I can see where she's coming from here, but of course she's operating out of unbelief. We must also realize that it was unlawful for Jews to come in contact with a dead body or gravesite. They could not touch a dead body, they couldn't touch the things that a dead body had touched. And they most certainly could not walk over a gravesite or come near a gravesite. Once the stone, if you had this kind of gravesite here where it's in the side of a hill or whatever, and you had a stone in front of it, once that stone was set and sealed, and by the way, they didn't just roll the stone in front of them. Usually they sealed it with wax or something. But once that stone was set and sealed in place, you could not touch the stone if you were Jewish. You would become corrupted and defiled, and you would have to go through a period of cleansing, It would jack you up for like a couple of weeks or a week or so. And by Martha's interjection here, we can obviously tell that she was the quote-unquote keeper of Lazarus's tomb. They actually assigned in the family or a close relative or friend that somebody would be the keeper of someone's tomb. They would make sure that nobody tampers with it, messes with it, that there aren't weeds growing up all around it. They would care for it, much like some people today care for the graveside of a loved one. And she's probably the keeper of the tomb and trying to protect the burial site here and, and she kind of gets in the way and tries to stop these guys. She actually stops the bystanders who were stepping forward to remove the stone. She says, No, don't do it. But as I said, her intervention may seem appropriate or somewhat noble, but at heart, at the heart of it, it's just unbelief. It's just not trusting and believing that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and that he can actually physically raise this dead man right now. That's what's at the core of it. It's not just about protecting it and doing these things or being complicit with Jewish law. It's, what are you doing, Jesus? Because she doesn't believe that he can do something about it. And this is incredible, considering moments earlier she testified to who Jesus is. Lord, I believe that you are the resurrection and the life. I believe that you are the Christ. I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe that you're the one who has come into the world. Right? Remember her testimony? Unbelievable testimony. That testimony ought to be on the lips of every true believer. And yet, moments, minutes later, terrible unbelief and trying to stop the Lord from doing what He came to do. Doesn't that describe our faith? One moment we believe very strongly, the next moment we're very weak. I'm a Martha. I told you that last week. Busy and keeping busy and not contemplating things too much and not trusting the Lord at all times. She believes who Jesus says He is, but right here she doesn't. She just tells Jesus and gets in the way, don't do it. Excuse me, don't roll the stone away because it's going to stink and it's going to look bad and Lord, you may want to look at his body one more time, but that's not a good idea at this point. Who knows what's going through her mind, but we know that she's tried to stop the thing. Martha believed that that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, but she didn't believe that he could raise her brother from the dead at that moment. Isn't that interesting? Oh, you're you're the resurrection and the life. I'm going to raise Lazarus. I've come here to take care of that. It stinks. Don't open it. Huh? You confused? She had faith in what Jesus will do in the future, right, on the last day. She believed that he was the resurrection and the life in the sense that he would raise all people, especially his own people, on the last day. We see that in verse 24. Yeah, you're who you say you are. I believe you'll raise us up and Lazarus up on the last day. She had faith in that, but no faith in what he could do in the present. None. None. And there are folks in the church today who are just like Martha, me included at times. They have confidence in Jesus' future power, but little or no confidence in His present power. They believe that Jesus will bring them to heaven, but they doubt that He will bring them what they need today. Isn't that bizarre how that works? Is that not every one of us? Boy, what a situation we're in. This stupid flesh, just plagued with weakness. Here's the deal, man. If something is missing in your life, there's something that you need. It's not because Jesus is only focused on the future. I don't have what I need now because Jesus is the God of the future, not the God of the present. This is Martha's thinking, right? It's not because He's only focused on the future. It's because the believer doubts and refuses to pray for what they need right now. That's the issue with us. We doubt and we refuse to pray. You ever read James 4, 2 through 3? You have not because you ask not. That's why. Not because Jesus is only concerned about last day resurrection. If that's the case, if he's only concerned about what's going to transpire in the future or what he's going to do in the future, then there's no, he has no business being the great high priest. The great high priest's ministry is right now. Oh, we're, we're just like her. A mature Christian or a Christian that's maturing believes in Jesus' future and present power. Not just in what he's going to do later. No, they believe that Jesus can and does use his power to overcome obstacles right now, to make provision to help them overcome situations or whatever these things are. They believe he can use his power to help with that situations, these situations right now. And they pray for this. We pray for these things at times, but so often our prayers are just chock full of unbelief and doubt, and they kind of just bounce off the ceiling. Do you believe in not only the future power of Christ to raise us, but in His present power to sanctify us and to make Him like Himself, to provide our every need, especially our... Spiritual needs, which He has fully satisfied as the living water. Spiritual needs, that is. Yeah, our emotional needs are great at times, and our physical needs are abounding at times. And, but do we believe that Christ is not just concerned about the future with us, that He cares for us now, and that He has our provision now, and that He desires and rejoices when we humbly come to Him and ask for His power now? Are we like Martha? I have no doubt what you'll do in the future, but I'm not sure about right now. Well, let's look at Jesus' response to Martha's intervention in verse 40. Here's how He replies to her. (laughs) That's just great. This is what He's saying to us if we're only focused on what He can do later. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Big question mark. (laughs) What are you doing, Martha? Didn't we talk about this? Now, this this is a gentle rebuke. This is a correction, and it's also a promise. It was as if he had said, Martha, don't be dismayed or concerned about the smell or the sight if you believe you will see the glory of God. This is what we talked about before, Martha. There is a a great principle truth here in this text. And it is this. Believing is requisite to seeing the glory of God. Let Let me repeat that. Believing is requisite to seeing the glory of God. In other words, if we don't have faith, we're not going to see the glory of God. This is a, a, a phenomenal truth that's represented in his correction to her. It's a gentle, loving correction, but there's a great truth here. Just let me try to frame this and, and, and define it and explain it to you. Just I'm thinking of Isaiah 6.3, this great, bold statement. God is, is speaking to Isaiah and it says, the whole earth is full of God's glory. What a statement. The whole earth is full of God's glory. Now, you must understand that this is an immutable and unchanging reality. Whether we believe it or not, it stands. The whole earth, the whole universe, the heavens and the earth are full of God's glory. And nothing Nothing can change that reality. Nothing can impact that reality. It's an eternal truth. But what does an unbeliever see when he or she examines the earth? Do they see the glory of God? No, they see the earth. What do they look at when they gaze upon the heavens above, the stars in the sky? Do they see the glory of God? No, they see the stars in the sky. Hey, that's the result of the Big Bang. What does an unbeliever see when they make the not terribly long drive up to Yosemite and they gaze upon Half Dome? Do they see the glory of God? No, they see Half Dome. What does an unbeliever see when he or she looks in the mirror? Does he or she see an image bearer who exists for the glory of God? No, they see the end result of an evolutionary process or something like that. That's what they see. Unbelievers cannot see the glory of God in the earth, in half dome or in the mirror, because they do not have faith. Faith is like a set of eyes that allows us to see the glory of God in all things. You understand what I'm telling you? Without faith, you'll just see things as they are, as they appear, but you won't see the glory of God behind them or being displayed through them. This is a huge truth. If Martha believed, she would see a manifestation of God's glory in the raising of Lazarus and her faith would be strengthened, right? It would be grown a little bit more, become a little bit more mature and strengthened and built up. And she would obviously respond by praising God. This is incredible. God, she would give glory to God. If she didn't believe, she would see Lazarus come out of the tomb, but she wouldn't be able to tie it to God's glory. She could very well become like those liberal scholars we described last week or the week before who say, well, he wasn't actually asleep, he wasn't actually dead, he was just in a coma, and Jesus woke him up, they would, she would find a way to explain it away. People who do not have faith cannot recognize the glory of God manifested in something like this, or the power of God, and they explain things away. Who knows how she would have responded without faith. One point is, is that would Lazarus have still come out of the tomb if she didn't believe? Of course he would have, but her perception of it would have been different. The glory of God can be seen in the raising of Lazarus, no doubt. But this is not the highest expression of God's glory in the text or in this historical event. Think about that. Does the raising of Lazarus reflect and show the glory of God? Well, of course, to the believer it does. They see that God did that and they give God glory and praise for it. So, of course, the raising of Lazarus has to do with the glory of God. But that's not the highest expression of it here. The highest expression of the glory of God in this text and anywhere else is in Jesus himself. What does Hebrews 1.3 say? Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. If you look at Jesus, if you see Jesus, you see the Father and you see God's glory. So the raising of Lazarus is an expression of God's glory, but there was a living, walking, breathing, miracle-working, gospel-preaching expression right there. God incarnate. God the person in person. Incredible. If Martha had faith, she would not only see the glory of God in the raising of Lazarus, she would see the glory of God in the one who raised Lazarus. That's the point of the text, friends. Not just to see Lazarus but to see Jesus himself as God and as the glory of God. The physical manifestation, walking the earth, expression of the glory of God. That is the ultimate purpose of this miracle. To see, to show that Jesus and the Father are one and that they share the same divine nature, they share the same mission, and they share the same glory john 10 30 the father and i are one jesus said we are one in mission we are one in person we are one in glory that's the point of the miracle faith gives us the ability to connect god's purposes and glory to everything especially to jesus Without faith, we will never be able to make these connections, nor will we experience eternal life. It'll never happen. What do you see when you look upon the earth? What do you see when you look in the mirror? What do you see when you look at Half Dome? What do you see when you go to the ocean? When you go to Pacific Grove, Asilomar, wherever it is that you go? What do you see when you go to Hawaii? never been there i'd like to go if you want to pay i'm in what do you see if you have faith in jesus you will see all of these things especially the earth as the theater of god's glory that's what you'll see you'll see that it was all created understand and see that it was all created by him for his glory. You will, see, you will see His glory expressed in everything. That's what you'll see if you have faith in Christ. If you do not have faith in Him, you will see the earth and nothing more. You will not see anything else. This is a principle truth that's here in this text. Look at 41 and 42. So they took the stone away. Whoa, look, they complied. They did the right thing. So they took the stone away and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Reassured by the Lord's promise, Martha moves out of the way. She gets out of the way. She stops trying to hinder the Lord's work here. She gets out of the way and she allows those bystanders to take the stone away from the entrance to his tomb. I like what John Chrysostom, he's an early church father, what he said. He suggests that Jesus involved bystanders so there would be no doubt that it was really Lazarus who was raised. Now, this could be true. If only Jesus' disciples were involved in this event, non-disciples would quickly dismiss the event, right? They would call it staged or a conspiracy or something. This is precisely what the unbelieving Pharisees did after the resurrection of Jesus. Well, he rose three days later. No, his disciples stole the body. That's what they said. This is what unbelievers do. They always put their own spin on things. Jesus deliberately pulls bystanders out of the crowd and has them participate by rolling the stone away. That way, they would know, they would see Lazarus is in the tomb. This is his tomb. This is his burial. There's no way for them to spin anything else. Now, of course, they could attempt to, but they were there and they would be held accountable. These bystanders were invited to participate. And in doing so, Jesus gained outside witnesses, which could or who could potentially affirm and defend the event, what occurred. This is brilliant. After the stone was Remove Jesus' praise. Let's take a quick look at the content of His prayer. It is a prayer of praise and thanksgiving, not petition. Just notice, He didn't ask the Father, could you raise Lazarus right now? That'd be really good. He doesn't ask Him to raise Lazarus. He thanks Him. He thanks the Father for always being there for Him, for always listening, for always hearing His prayers. And then Jesus states the purpose for his prayer. It was as if he had said, I am praying to you, not because I need something from you, but because I want to tie what I'm about to do to you so that people here will know that you sent me. He's praying out loud, audibly. Everyone present there can hear him. He's immediately tying what he's about to do. The stone is rolled away. The stinketh is coming. He's about to perform a miracle and he stops and pauses to thank the Father and tie the Father to the miracle so that those there would say, maybe God really did send him as he's been saying for three years. Maybe he is our Messiah. Maybe he is the Son of God as he's been saying. Maybe he really is the resurrection and the life. I think we should put our faith in him. He ties it to the Father. And this was Jesus' overarching purpose for all that he did during his ministry and his whole life was to bring glory to God. He doesn't leave the Father out of this scenario. He wants the Father to be glorified as well. He lived his whole life for the Father's glory. Do we live our whole lives for the glory of our Savior, the glory of the Son? He ties it to the Father. R. Kent Hughes again, again wrote, picture the scene, the stone was rolled away. They could see Lazarus' body in there and possibly other bodies on those tiers, you know, and those indentions. He says the, the eager crowd pressed forward. Suddenly they, they grew quiet. The chatter, the debating ended. And they kind of press in to look in there to see what's going to happen. What's he going to do? The sisters, Martha and Mary, who had been weeping, stopped with a sense of expectation. Our Lord's eyes, which before had been weeping, were now aglow. Now look at 43 through 44a. When he had said these things, the references to his prayer tying it all to the Father. He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man, and look what John says. John was there. The guy that wrote this gospel, the inspired gospel, the guy that was inspired by the Holy Spirit to record this account. He was there. He was a physical witness. Look what he says. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Wow. Notice some of the details here or lack thereof. In several instances, Jesus used touch When performing miracles, think of the man born blind in John 9. Did he not make, you know, take a little spittle with a little dirt and make mud pies and put them on the guy's eyes? He physically massaged those into the guy's eyes and told him, go wash in the pool. He touched the man. I recall in one of the other gospel accounts where he touches a leper. Nobody touched lepers. And he touches a leper, and the leper is made well. Think of the time that that Jesus used His hands and His touch to to lift up a few loaves and fishes, right? And He prays a prayer of thanks to the Father. And all of a sudden, He turns a couple of loaves and a couple of fishes into a a banquet for 20,000 people or so. Touch. He used His hands. He touched when He performed miracles. But here, He does not employ touch. Nor did He enter the tomb and lay His hands on Lazarus's rotting corpse. He used words to raise him from the dead. He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. What does this show us? It shows us the efficacy of Jesus' word. The efficacy of the Bible. How it has the ability and power to make effect and change. Do you know why some Christians are so spiritually wimpy and prone to sin these days? They're not in the word where the power of God resides. They're lazy. Hebrews 4.12 says, for the word of God is alive and powerful. Dunamis is the word translated. It means. That's where we get the word dynamite from. The word of God is living and active and powerful. It has dynamite power. It is sharper than a, the sharpest two-edged sword. Now, I have yet to find a pastor who disagrees with that incredible text right there, but I have found many who have placed the preaching of God's Word incredibly low on the Sunday totem pole. They dedicate an hour plus to music, testimonies, videos, and whatever, but 15 to 20 minutes for the sermon. They wonder why their church is malnourished and weak. And quite frankly, most of the sermons they're preaching, if they're 15 or 20 minutes or even 30 minutes, they're pretty fluffy. It's just self-help. Well, if you want to have a better marriage, follow these three steps. Well, I've been doing them for years, and my marriage hasn't gotten any better. Maybe you should start telling me about Jesus and what He's done for me. Maybe that'll improve my marriage. Well, it actually will, because it'll change you. You're the problem in your marriage. A wise pastor once stated, and I've quoted this before, he said, We live in the era of the sermonette. But do you know what sermonettes produce? Christianettes. I want you to think about what actually happened here and transpired. In the blink of an eye, all of Lazarus's bodily systems were fully restored to their normal function. Our bodies have a lot of systems, a lot of different things going on. Respiratory, you've got these different systems, and all of these things, in the blink of an eye, are fully. Re- You're, we're talking about his innards and body is decomposing, it is rotting. And all of these things. And this was not progressive restoration, there was no healing process here. If there was a healing process, it was instantaneous. Lazarus goes from full decomposition to full restoration. The time it took Jesus to say, Lazarus, come out. Three words. This was an awesome display of divine power, a total and absolute suspension of the laws of nature. Really, the pinnacle of miracle, of, of Jesus' ministry. This is the last great public miracle that he performs before he goes off into seclusion, then comes and enters into the Passion Week. This is the miracle of all his miracles with the exception of his own resurrection, which is certainly the highest. And this leads up to it. It has often been observed that Jesus's power is so great that if he had not, if he had not addressed Lazarus by name all the dead in graves would have come forth. Think about that. If he had just said, rise and come out, he'd had a mess on his hands. All of a sudden, there's eight guys trying to get out of that one tomb. Everyone else but Lazarus, lay down, you know. Think about that. That is the power of the Lord. He specifically uses Lazarus' name. It's a targeted raising. But one day in the future, this is precisely what will happen. When the cry of command is given, the dead in Christ shall rise. Like that. Notice some of the details that John includes. When Lazarus came out, it says his hands and feet were bound with linen strips, and his head was wrapped with a cloth. Now, these are ancient Jewish burial clothes. That's exactly what these things are. That's what they represent. After washing the the body, the person who passed away, they would apply lotions and aloes, and that was primarily to hide the smell that would come just a few days later. And then they wrapped up the body like a mummy, but not like the Egyptians. They would wrap the body, Jews would wrap the body lightly, not as tightly and not as thoroughly. Egyptians basically encased the body in a linen cocoon. When Lazarus came to life and, and stood up, the linen strips around his feet and legs would have prohibited him from walking normally, so he had to kind of shuffle out of the tomb or hop. He's wrapped up, it's loose, but it's still there. His head was also wrapped, so I'm not sure how he was able to see. Probably what happens is those rays of sunlight were just bursting and beaming into the tomb. And you know how it is when you have your eyes closed, and if you have a source of light that's bright, you can still kind of tell where that source of light's coming from, and you kind of turn even though you can't see well, and you follow that. And that's probably what he did. All of that light's pouring in through that entrance right there, and he kind of turns, and it's kind of blinding even though his eyes are covered, and he just kind of of walks out like a Scooby-Doo episode with the mummy who's running around asking for coins. Remember that one? He probably bumps his head on the thing and kind of gets out and it's what am I doing? His hands are probably bound down here. So, I don't know what it looked like, but the details are here. I don't know what it looked like, but the details are there. He just comes out. He comes out of the tomb. He makes his way out. He's probably thinking, I was in paradise. What happened? The raising of Lazarus is the seventh major sign in John's gospel. Now let's look at 44b, our last verse. This is really interesting. So He comes out and Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Who do you think Jesus was speaking to here? Martha and Mary? Negative. He was speaking to the bystanders whom He had commanded to take away the stone. He gets them involved again. The bystanders not only rolled the stone away and saw Jesus, uh, Lazarus's dead body in the tomb; they, you know, watched him walk out of the tomb and then unwrapped him with their own hands. They were involved in the miracle. Uh, Gerald Burchert wrote, "It is important to note. What is important to note is that Jesus employed human agents to assist him with the circumstances." Thus, the very mourners who doubted him were agents in the completion of the miracle. In their participation, the mourners became part of the sign and therefore were undeniable witnesses to the power of Jesus. Sounds like the John Chrysostom angle is pretty accurate according to this guy. He gets them involved to use them so that they can bear witness and they are the most unlikely people to bear witness for the Lord. But they were physically involved. To deny what they actually did would be to take it to another level. And there you have it. Jesus proclaimed that He is the resurrection and the life. And He provided an undeniable proof that substantiated His claim. The raising of Lazarus. I like the simplicity of John's account of this historical event John always keeps things very simple. He does not describe Lazarus' reunion with his sisters or the reactions of the people in the crowd. Notice that? There's no detail and you know stuff was happening. He doesn't include any of it. Why? Because this would have detracted from his reason for recounting the miracle that the readers of this gospel might believe that Jesus is who He said He is and glorify Him. The whole gospel was written as a persuasion, proving who Jesus is, that people might believe in Him and trust in Him as Lord and Savior. That's why the series is called Believe. Well, my question to you is, do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? I hope so. If we deny His resurrection and deny that He alone can give us eternal life, because that is what is meant by He is the life. He is the only source for eternal life, the only source for salvation. There is no other way to the Father except through Him. If we deny that He is the resurrection, that He raises all people, in particular His people, to glory, if we deny that he He alone can give us eternal life, we will experience judgment and we will deserve it accept the inerrant testimony of John 11. Believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior and be saved." Closing, going a little different angle here, picked up on something. You know, the Word of God, the Scripture, any particular text always has one meaning. It does not have multiple meanings. You cannot read a text and say, that has five meanings. It does not have five meanings. It has one meaning, and the context determines the meaning, but it can have a thousand applications. That's the thing that people flip. It can have a thousand meanings. No, it can't. It has one meaning. That author had one intent, and that author is God. But there can be a thousand applications, amen? There are a lot of different ways that we can take what we've read and studied and apply it. And there are a lot of truths in this passage. The prevailing and most important is that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, no doubt. That is the author's intent. If we miss that, we've missed it all. That's the point. That's why I kind of ended up with that. But I'm I'm going to now speak, I believe to believers. I'm going to speak to the Christians here. I'm going to speak to those who name Christ the disciples. And here's an application. Simple. Jesus used bystanders to serve His purposes. We see it. Two examples. They rolled the stone away. They unwrapped. Lazarus' body it became an undeniable proof. If he used bystanders to serve his purposes, then he can use his, his own people to serve his purposes. <laughs> what a thought. And he has given each of His disciples, each of His people, a minimum of one spiritual gift. Many talents too. There's a lot of physical talents that we have. He gives those as well. But for the most part, He gives each of us a minimum of one spiritual gift to be used in service to Him. And some of His people have multiple gifts. They can do many different things, spiritual gifts that is. The question is, what is your gift? Or what are your gifts? I'm not a big fan of spiritual gift tests. I think they're silly. I think God and the Holy Spirit can make it plain to you where your talent lies. But how are you using your gift or gifts? Are you using it to build up the body of Christ in service to Christ? It's a great question. I ask this because there is an 80-20 rule. 80% of the church are doing nothing. 20 is doing all the work. It's a sad reality. It's a tragedy. I know a great many people in this church are actively serving and busy, but there are some that aren't. What is your gift? What are your gifts? How are you using them? We have been talking about service all month. (laughs) That's been our reading theme been our reading theme for July, and it's not just oh wow, we're just reading about service. You know, every one of these subjects in this liturgy I created, thank you Lord. Every one of these things reflects a, a characteristic or a character trait of a believer, a true believer. We're not just reading these things because wow, we want to read about service all month. We're trying to we're trying to help everyone here, including myself, understand what we're to be about not just read a text, not just be hearers. If you're in Christ, you are to be a servant. You are to serve the Lord. And the way that you serve the Lord is by serving your brothers and sisters in Christ. And obviously, you can serve unbelievers as well. But primarily and firstly, the brethren. And as Bruce said earlier, I would hate for these subjects just to be subjects and not There's supposed to be an emphasis for the month that we're focusing on something in particular, being inspired to discover our gifts and if, you know, get them to work, put them to use. Think about the things that we've read and the subjects that we've looked at on week one in July, you know, believers are created for good works. The next week, believers are given gifts for service. Three, believers are to be others minded, not just focused on themselves, but on others. Week four, believers should use their time wisely, right? In reference to what? Serving the Lord and serving one another. And then week five, what Bruce just covered, believers are to serve one another. You just can't get any plainer than that. That's what we've talked about for five weeks. It's not just a neat thing to read and focus on. It's who we are to be. Well, I, I, I saw the subject for July, so I served the Lord through July. Then I took the other 11 months off. Huh? You know, the subject of focus in November is Thanksgiving. Or would he only be thankful to the Lord for what he's done for us and his constant provision and grace and goodness and mercy and loving kindness in November? No. We're not to be servants just in July. We're not to be thankful just in November. These things, we are to embody these things daily. And I implore you to get to work for the Lord. In fact, you're hindering your own faith if you're not serving him. Your, your faith can be matured and grown in the context of service. It will be. It will be. So I encourage you to serve Him. And if you can't figure out where to do that in this church, and maybe you need some help with that, and that's, that's logical, I would love to meet with you and talk with you. There are, there are opportunities around here. There are things that need to be done. You can do them unto the Lord with all joy, and he will work through your service, and he will build up his church here, and you will bring him glory through your service. Okay? If he can use bystanders, he can use his own people. He's gifted us to serve. Let's do it.